Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He's 25 years old and a U.S. Army veteran and now wants to take on Joe Courtney in elections in 2022. So who is Anthony Delizia, a Democrat and new breed of young people wanting to get into politics in the state? Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. There's a new breed of young people in the state of Connecticut looking to get into politics, and some are as young as 18 years old. They say they're fed up with the status quo and the old guard mentality of both parties and their current representatives, saying they have stagnated views and that term limits need to be introduced to stop career politicians. So what can this new generation offer instead? I caught up with Anthony Delizia, a Stonington resident and army veteran who is a member of the Democratic Party, but wants to challenge Joe Courtney of the 2nd District in next year's elections. Anthony, thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You're going to challenge Joe Courtney. We're going to get into that in a little while. But who is Anthony Delizia? I am a Connecticut-raised individual from two years old. I I moved to Connecticut with my family. We lived in Norwich, and then from second grade moved to Salem, Connecticut, where I spent the the rest of my uh, young life being raised. I joined the Army in 2014. I was an all-source intelligence analyst um, working in military intelligence. I deployed to the Middle East in 2015, which was a really amazing, unique experience. I then reclassified to a behavioral health specialist where I spent my second contract at Fort Hood, Texas. And now I am back here helping run my family's business and expanding us outside of just the local aspect. And that's, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much me. I'm a passionate social activist, I call myself. Throughout the six years uh, in the Army, I was really involved in in politics and trying to push issues that I think are important. Why are you interested in politics? Because I think I've read in a couple of other interviews that you've given that politics doesn't necessarily run in your family. You've Um, always had an interest. Where did that come from? Yes, certainly, certainly not. Uh, My family thinks I'm crazy for wanting to go into politics. It's it's not something that anyone particularly has, has been fond of. But for me, I just always gravitated towards not just politics, but government in general. I I always found it fascinating, my favorite subjects in school. Uh, I just think there's something about what our system is set up to do, what the goal of our system to do, which is to help the community and help real people. And I feel like being a representative of your community, of your district, of whether it be a lower local level or president of the United States, it's meant to do good. And it gives you a platform to do good as long as you bring honesty and integrity into that position. So let's move on to this incredible challenge you've set for yourself. Yes. You are a member of the Democratic Party and you have decided to challenge 
Representative Joe Courtney, who yes. has been a representative now for about 15 years mm-hmm. for the second district. Why did you decide to do that? So I'm not sure if how many people are aware, but Representative Courtney has gone unchallenged by any other Democrat for over 10 years. So to put that into perspective, when it comes to the United States House of Representatives for Connecticut's 2nd District, we have not had a Democratic primary for that position in over 10 years, which to me is the greatest disservice that we can do to people in general, is to not give them another option. Popular or not, there are other people with different ideas, different viewpoints, who may better represent your ideas and viewpoints. And when you go 10 years without even having another choice, without being able to to make that decision for yourself, then you can't truly say that you're being represented exactly how you want to be. Because at the end of the day, in most situations, in most cases, a Democrat's going to vote Democrat, a Republican's going to vote Republican. And if Joe Courtney's the only option, then there's no room for growth. I suppose I would put this to you. He has been challenged, obviously, by Republicans. Like you said, he hasn't been challenged by Democrats. Every Republican challenger has failed to oust him. In fact, the last election, he had 60% of the vote. What is it that you think you've got that potentially could, you know, put you in a position to replace him? So I think that what we've seen over the last 15 years. So when Representative Courtney was first elected, it was something like 85 votes or some extremely low margin of victory. And then every single election since then, it was a it was a larger margin. I think the lowest since that first election was 58%. Some some crazy number, right? And he's always secured his secured his spot. What I think we've seen over the last 15 years especially as we grow and as we adapt and as the ideology of a certain area starts to shift, you just see that margin of win for Joe Courtney grow bigger and bigger. And I think a big part of that is because we do have a lot of Democrats in the state. We have a lot of unaffiliated voters, which tend to vote Democrat if you look at the spread of of the elections. So I think the margins of his victory come down to the point that even though we are more middle-of-the-road districts of the entire state, we still are more, more liberal. And the, the Democratic candidates just tend to perform more well. I think what I'm doing with this campaign is giving another option to people. I'm giving a more progressive viewpoint, in my opinion, than Representative Courtney, to give that option to, to the people of our district. And I think that as much as much as he's done as popular as he is at the end of the day people can pretty much all agree that no one should spend a lifetime in congress that our government is not meant to just be a career field that you can collect a pension after x amount of time and go about your ways it's supposed to be a tool for the people and term limits for me are the most important thing which is why we're focusing that uh, as one of the aspects of our campaign so give us an idea of some of the things that, you know, um, mean something to you and you feel mean something to the people that you want mm-hmm. to represent that, you know, are different to Joe Courtney. For me, healthcare is a huge, huge, huge uh, aspect of this campaign, of what I believe. I personally believe that we should expand Medicare and a public Medicare option to all people. I think that certain life-saving treatments, such as chemotherapy, you know, radiation, uh, dialysis, 
things that are required to save your life, that should be free, hands down. No one should have to choose between saving their lives or seeking medical treatment or paying their next bill, paying their car payment, their mortgage. I personally believe that that is definitely more... Well, I know for a fact that that's more progressive and liberal than Representative Courtney. That's, in my opinion, one of the most progressive things that I think separates us. Um, I know, I think it was, can't remember exactly when, last year, two years ago, but Representative Courtney, you know, he supported a, an option for, I think, people between 55 and 65 to buy into Medicare. But to me, that's not, that's not good enough. You have a lot of young people who are already struggling starting off their lives because of education and how expensive college is, right? People who are starting off their young lives in massive amounts of debt. So you have a lot of people who are uninsured, a lot of young people who are still staying on their parents' insurance policies until they no longer are able to. And so for me, I think that's the wrong answer. I think that there should be an option that, hey, you can get Medicare coverage no matter what age you are, because healthcare is a human right, plain and simple. It's a human right. No one should have to choose between medical, medical care. Let me ask you another question. Where do you stand on defense issues? Because obviously you are ex-military mm-hmm. yourself, having yes. been in the Army since the age of 18. And uh, obviously he has done a lot for the defense industries here in eastern Connecticut. So where do you stand on that? Because he has effectively brought in millions of dollars to keep obviously not only that um, you know, industry going, but obviously jobs and the economy. So where do you stand on that? Yeah, so I think that... That's something that kind of sets me apart is, you know, if you look at a lot of people who are ex-military running for office, a lot of times you see them running as a Republican because there's kind of that association a lot of times. For me, I am consider myself to be a very progressive liberal person. I do, however, especially through my experience in the military, I have learned and I have seen just how important our defense sector is for our country, not just for the aspect of military defense, but humanitarian efforts for, you know, outreach in the communities when there's a natural disaster. Our military is extremely important, and I certainly plan to be a huge advocate, not only for expansion of jobs and expansion on the the sub-base, which really supports what makes our Navy what it is, and I don't get me wrong, we need to address the military budget. That's something that certainly cannot continue going overlooked. It's some, I think, 700-something, 800-something billion dollars, which is way too much. Now, when people think of cutting the military budget, they immediately think, oh, you're cutting, cutting jobs, you're cutting positions, you're going to bring back the submarine contracts, you're going to bring back the naval contracts. But... Being in the military and actually experiencing how the system operates for the past six years, you see where we're wasting money unnecessarily. And that's something that, you know, Representative Courtney, as much as he's done for the military, he doesn't have that military experience. Now, as a veteran and having been in the military, you see that we waste so much money at the end of every fiscal year, which is in October... When the budget is about to reset for the military, units start spending the rest of their budgets 
on random, unnecessary things. Something that I think we need to kind of highlight. The reason units are doing this is because they know if they don't spend all of their budget, Congress is not going to allocate them the same amount the next year. My pro- my my position and my uh, proposal for this is instead we tell we incentivize those units and say we are going to allocate the same budget next year whether you spend it or not. Give an incentive if you spend x amount under your budget the people maybe the soldiers the service members within that unit they get a small monetary bonus right for saving money because at the end of the day we could roll any money that's saved over into the next year so that it's less new tax money that's being used so i think that there's a lot of places especially when it comes to fraud waste and abuse is what we call it in the military when it comes to electricity consumption you know having all the buildings have the motion sensor lights so that we aren't just leaving lights on overnight. There's a lot of smaller fixes that really will accumulate without having to sacrifice our military strength, which ultimately is what makes the United States one of the superpowers that it is. You said earlier that um, most uh, military, if they decide to run for office, run under the Republican banner. And um, I'm going to mention to you, obviously, Mike France, who is Mm -hmm. a former naval person who is running under the Republican Mm -hmm. banner. He's from the 42nd District. He is also going to try and oust uh, Joe Courtney. What are your thoughts on him? So at the end of the day, and and to put it very blunt, because there's really no reason to beat around the bush, Mike France just represents more of the same, more of what people are tired in politics. He's an old guard individual who has been in office, who has stagnated in his ideas, in my opinion. He is certainly a more conservative option. He was part of the eight people who voted against the ban on conversion therapy in the state of Connecticut when they were banning conversion therapy. So, in my opinion, a vote for Mike France is certainly a step back for this district. We are seeing right now a lot of young people moving out of our district. We're seeing a lot of young people moving out of the state of Connecticut. And I think people need to be take that seriously and try viewing as to why that's happening. Because when you have young people moving out of communities at an alarming rate, that's how communities die. That's how you know the people who are supposed to secure the future and bring innovation to the district, they're leaving. That's how a state ultimately becomes a retirement state. And for me, when you continue electing people such as Mike France, when you spend 15 years electing the same person, rep, you know, Representative Joe Courtney, for 15 years, no matter what he's done for the district, you see a stagnation of ideas, a stagnation of views. You have so many people telling you telling us that they're tired of the same old politics, they're tired of the same old government, and the Democratic Party keeps backing the same old politics. Representative Courtney is the same old politics. Mike France is coming up. He's If he were to win, which I certainly don't think he will, because again, it's everyone can clearly see it's a step back for our district, but if he were to win, it's just more of the same old politics, which the young people are trying to say, hey, we're tired of. And that's why I think this campaign is so important, because win or lose, it's drawing attention to that fact that we haven't, we've been experiencing the same old politics and the old guard mentality for the last 15 years. Let me put this question to you. Have you spoken to Joe Courtney at all? And if so, what's his view about the fact that you want to challenge him? Yeah, so 
The first thing I did, actually, a couple of weeks before my official kickoff event, we were doing a soft launch, building social media, and we reached out to his campaign. And actually, I reached out directly uh, myself. I, I, I sent them an email, and I, I introduced myself. I said, you know, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to damage the district, that no matter what the outcome of the, of the primary is, I you know, want to be in solidarity with either your campaign if it continues and vice versa, right? If I win the primary, I would hope that he would back our campaign. Um, I made it clear that at the end of the day, I'm not trying to lose this district to a Republican such as Mike France, right? And I'm going to do everything in my power to prevent that from happening. And, you know, I, I reached out saying, hey, let's, let's meet. At some point, I would love to meet. I would love to discuss how we can best utilize both of our campaigns and utilize this unprecedented primary challenge uh, for good, for the benefit of the district. And, you know, I got back the cookie-cutter email that they would send to a constituent talking about all the great things he's done for the district and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to me that was a little disheartening because, you know, they, they clearly don't see it as as a challenge which i look forward to to proving that wrong and to me it it seemed like a good opportunity for how we can use our campaigns to help our district and it kind of went ignored we even had the connecticut post i believe when i did my interview with them they reached out to the campaign campaign had no no comment so to me it seems a little arrogant it seems a little cocky it seems like they're less focused on trying to figure out how we can work together for good competitors or not it's healthy competition so i hope at some point i'll meet with him and and talk with him but if not then that just continues to prove that old guard mentality that that mentality that he's untouchable and i look forward to at least talking to him on the debate stage at some point You've met the criteria, obviously, to move mm-hmm. this forward. $5,000 you've raised. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about how the campaign so like, moves on from there because the election isn't actually until November of 2022, which seems mm-hmm. a long way off, but it will soon be here. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so, so the primary is going to be in August of next year. The primary date it hasn't been secured yet. So my goal from the start was knowing that I'm going up against the machine that backs Joe Courtney. I need time to to campaign and to get get my voice out there especially as a new voice you you have to you have to start growing a base so a year seemed like an adequate amount of time to to start raising those funds to start gathering support so that by the time the primaries come and not just the primaries but when i have to petition to get on the ballot right you know we want to have enough established base where that's going to be no issue where we're going to be able to move forward and get on the debate stage and focus on the the things that are important to our district and, and to this election. So after our kickoff event happens, we immediately went back into, into fundraising. That, unfortunately, is the necessary evil that we are going up against. So uh, right now we're just focused on raising funds to challenge his, his machine behind him. I think he's raised... 700 something thousand dollars so far 
Um, that's a lot of money, isn't right. it? I mean, that's one of the things I think maybe puts a lot of people off is that even if you can get the initials mm-hmm. of like funding, it's then how do you keep that money rolling mm-hmm. in? Yeah. So to me, that's beyond just term limits. Campaign finance reform is extremely important in our districts and in our country in general. You have so much money being pumped into our political system. We spend more on our presidential elections, for example, than all of Europe combined. Like, it's a disgusting amount of money. And not a single person can try looking me in the eyes and, and justifying why we need that money in our, in our politics, in our government. There's no justification. And I think that that's why the longer someone's in office, the more they build that money machine behind them, the more they start having their interests swayed, even if they don't think so, right? They are getting back. They are relying on this money to be coming in. They're relying on these on these these packs to 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 fuel their uh, their campaigns and their elections. So, at the end of the day, money is is unfortunately right now a necessary evil, but it's evil. <laughs> it's evil in in politics, and it really has no place. When I was filing, when I filed my initial paperwork with the FEC in April of this year, I went on the FEC webpage. They show you, and I invite anyone who's listening right now to go to the FEC's page, and they show you for the entire country what the PACs have raised, what campaigns have raised, and just up until April of this year, from January to April, there were there was already over $2 billion raised across the country for different political campaigns and, and reasons, which to me is just, it's not even a, an election year. It's an off-election year for federal elections. So the fact that there's been over $2 billion raised just baffles me. There's, there's really no excuse. I want to put this final question to you, and it's a very sort of like simple question. How do you fancy your chances, obviously, against Joe Courtney? So... Actually, the more I've been out talking to real people and the more that we've been getting the word out about our campaign, the more confidence I've actually gotten because really, yes, he's he's a popular person, but when you really look at it, he's popular with the Connecticut political machine, right? And when I've talked to real people and you say the word term limits, for example, their eyes light up because... Democrats, Republicans, independents, everyone can get behind term limits. Everyone can agree that no one should spend a lifetime in Congress. So actually, the more that our team has gotten out and I've met real people, my confidence has has grown because I know that the interest is there. And I think we really have an opportunity here with this campaign to energize not just the young people, but energize the Democratic base in general, which again has just stagnated and gone with the flow for the last 15 years. So I'm excited to see how this next year is going to go, and I really am optimistic with with our chances. It's going to be a lot of hard work, but if I didn't believe in what I was doing, then I wouldn't be here to begin with. So, Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your candid conversation, and we look forward to following the progress of your campaign as we go into, obviously, the elections for next year. But in the meantime, Anthony Delicia, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. 
avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at greenvalleytreeworks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, they interview Stephen Cohen, the longtime head of what has become Connecticut's largest tourist attraction, the Mystic Aquarium. The aquarium is a genuine marine biology research institution with a strong faculty connection to Yukon and a significant staff of in-residents and affiliated scientists that also draws crowds and ticket sales with its crowd-pleasing focus on marine mammals, including beluga whales, penguins and sea lions. But with increasing public attention to animal welfare and appreciation for the extraordinary intelligence and emotional lives of some species, the aquarium has tried to walk a careful line between entertainment and scientific purpose. In early August, that conversation came to a head when one of five beluga whales transferred to the aquarium died from what scientists say were gastric ulcers. The whales were brought to the aquarium from marine land in Canada where they were born. The ailing whale was believed to be recovering from the condition prior to the move. The aquarium has also been the focus of millions of dollars of public and private investment, some of which has been used to clear its debt. In the day this week in New London, a pair of preservation-minded developers have scooped up two ageing downtown properties on Bank and State Streets. High Tide Capital completed the purchase of the former home of Jason's Furniture at 133 Bank Street earlier this summer and recently closed on the main wearing building at 223 to 229 State Street. Developers already have obtained zoning approval to convert the existing commercial spaces on the second and third floors of the State Street building into market-rate modern apartments and the rear-facing spaces into five two-level townhouse-style spaces. There will be up to 21 units in all with a restaurant space on the street level and gymnasium in the basement. The building has a dozen parking spaces and a pedestrian walkway to the adjacent parking garage. Similar plans are installed for the Bank Street building which now houses an indoor flea market and whose upper levels have views of the Thames River. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, the University of Connecticut is requiring that all its employees be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or receive an exemption that would require them to submit to weekly testing. The policy announced in a letter to faculty and staff is similar to one already instituted for residential students attending the fall semester at the university. Dr. Andrew Aguinobi, the school's interim president, said the policy applies to employees at all UConn campuses, as well as UConn Health in Farmington, and was created in collaboration with the unions that represent faculty and staff. Employees must show evidence of vaccination by October 15th or request and receive an exemption or deferral, he said. The school has about 9,800 full and part-time employees, about 5,100 at the stores and its regional campuses in Hartford, Stamford, Avery Point and Waterbury, and about 4,700 at Yukon Health. In the Middletown Press this week, Middletown's annual fireworks festival, rescheduled for Labor Day weekend, has been cancelled amid a rise in coronavirus cases, the city of Middletown said recently. In past years, the family-friendly event has drawn large crowds for its music, entertainment and food vendors. 
After careful consideration and in consultation with public health officials, it was determined that the safest course of action would be to cancel the event this year, the city said in a recent press release. Typically held around the 4th of July holiday, the festival was delayed and scheduled for Saturday, September 4th. And in the Chronicle this week, with the peak of hurricane season right around the corner and predicted to be a busy one, the American Red Cross is holding local drives beginning later this month. In addition to blood and platelets, volunteers are needed to man disaster shelters in both entry-level and supervisory positions. Licensed healthcare providers are also in demand. There have already been several named storms this year, and experts report we could see 10 or more storms with winds reaching hurricane strength, said Mario Bruno, chief executive officer of the American Red Cross for the Connecticut and Rhode Island regions. In June, the Red Cross announced a 10% increase in demand for blood and platelet supplies in hospitals and trauma centers, in part due to people presenting with more progressed illnesses, having delayed treatment due to the COVID-19 pandemic. To donate blood or to volunteer, visit redcross.org for details. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.